is organically united. It's a living, organic teaching. It's not a dead letter. We don't, as Catholics believe, we're a people of the book. We aren't a religion of the book. We're a religion of relationship with Jesus Christ, who's a living person. So this book means nothing without the Holy Spirit. You could read this to your blue in the face. There's people that know this front and back, but they haven't experienced Jesus Christ. And so it's just another like information book for them. But we believe that it's the Holy Word of God, it's the sacred scriptures. And so, again, I'd like to just before starting, just to have you keep that in mind that we are diving into, the whole time you're in our state, it's a diving and delving into a great, great, great mystery. The mystery of the most holy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the mystery of God that we enter into. And so the tendency of us in the West is to make everything linear and to figure everything out, to want to understand and make a math equation out of the Bible. This is more of a love letter than a math equation. If you look at this like a scientist, you're going to miss the point. God didn't give us the scriptures to give us the you know, understanding of how he created the world. He gave us this as a love letter. And once I heard it said that the way an optometrist looks into your eyes is different than the way your husband or wife looks into your eyes, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) So God's giving us a love relationship. And he's not so much here to analyze our pupils and help us to discover everything and how he did everything. It's a faith walk. It's a relationship. And it unfolds for each of us at a different pace in a different way. Some of us get knocked off our horse like Paul. Other of us just slowly, gradually move in in that process of converting and becoming Christ. And that's the goal of our faith is that we become Christ to each other and to the world. So just to keep all that in mind, it's a tremendous mystery we're entering into and we don't want to uh, solve the mystery of God away. We want to leave room for mystery. There will always be room. Think about it. Your finite minds will never grasp the infinite. For eternity, you'll be learning about God. You'll be understanding Him, growing in knowledge of God. He's infinite. And it would take an infinite mind to understand the infinite. So our minds are finite. But God, through His light and His Holy Spirit, keeps drawing us into this profound, amazing mystery of love. And so I'd like to just kind of give an overture, if you will, or a a prologue or a preface to what I'm going to say tonight regarding the Scriptures and uh, revelation, sacred revelation. And first of all is God reveals Himself incrementally through time. From the beginning of time until today, God is revealing himself. He's undisclosing himself. So if we kind of looked at a graph, if we looked at like here, and this is time and this is revelation, you can kind of go like that, okay? So the beginning of time until infinity, and you have this graph, right? And you could say here, let's say here is... Galatians 4, 4. This is the incarnation, okay? My writing's sloppy, but you'll get used to it. So, this is Galatians 4, 4. This is the incarnation. So, as time...
progressed, God unfolded his life and relationship and invites us as he discloses himself. So, what's you guys' names? You're giving me a good prop today. <laughs> Phil and Laura. Phil and Laura. So Phil and Laura didn't all of a sudden get to know each other and be like, the first day they met, hey, let's get married. Right? It takes time. They, they disclose their hearts and souls to each other. And in time, you could say, they come to know each other. You could say, you could say this is knowledge, okay? So we grow in knowledge as time, as time goes by, as we get to know each other, open each other's hearts, disclose, disclose each other to each other. That's, that's what Scripture is. It's, it's God's way of revealing Himself through time. Incrementally, it's a progressive revelation. It's an unfolding. So God reveals Himself in time. Now, God desires to be known. And thus, we could look at our desire to know. God made us to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him. God made us to know Him. So our desire to know is a reflection of God and how He made us. So Augustine says, Oh God, let me know myself so that I can know You. Let me know myself so that I can know You. When you aren't afraid to tap into your hearts, when you aren't afraid to go into your own humanity and start experiencing the insatiable ache of your human nature, it's in that ache and in that desire that you begin to hear echoes of God's love for you, that you begin to hear, if you will, reflections of God's plan to, to, to know you and for you to know Him. So there's this desire God has to know us and our desire to know Him. And, and so this is what makes the Judeo-Christian uh, faith different than any other religion across the globe and across the world. Christianity is God's pursuit of humanity. We don't pursue Him first. The Scripture says God first loved us. So God's pursuing you and me. He's pursuing us as a lover He's pursuing us as a lover. He wants to look into our eyes. He wants us to see Him, to experience Him. He wants us to have this experience of His profound, amazing, passionate love for us. This is why we call it the passion of Christ. It's not so much when He's suffering. Yes, He's thinking of you and me. The only thing on Jesus' mind is you. When He's on that cross, He can't get His eyes off of you. He can't stop thinking about you. Not for an instant does God stop thinking about us. And so Christianity, the Judeo-Christian religion, is God pursuing humanity. And through time, incrementally revealing himself to humanity. And at this moment, Galatians 4.4, 4, if you guys want to open your Bibles to that, I'm going to just kind of use the scriptures here. It's on page... Uh, page 281. I'll just give you pages. That way we don't spend 8,000 hours trying to find it. So page 281. If someone wants to read Galatians 4, 4, for me. Who wants to read it? Okay, go ahead. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. How far do you want me to go? I'll keep going. Just tell them to stop. <laughs> to ransom those under the law, so that we might 
so that we might receive adoption, adoption, as proof that you are children. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Okay, that's good. So this, this, but, but when the fullness of time, so time's going, at the fullness of time, when God saw it fit that, was huma- that humanity was ready to receive Him, that's the fullness of time. The moment in time where God took His people from Adam and Eve as they grew and grew and grew up into this moment where they were ready to receive Him. So at this fullness of time, God was born of a woman born under the law. Okay, then I want you to, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Someone could go to, it's on t- page 330. I know someone read that. Hebrews chapter 1. 1 to 3, if you can read verses 1 to 3. Okay, good. In times past, God spoke impartial in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets. In these last days, He spoke to us through a Son, whom He made heir of all things, and through whom He created the universe, who is the refulgence of His glory. Okay, that's good. So, in times past, God spoke through the prophets. So, you're starting to see how this is a, a progression of revelation of who God is. We're talking about a person that wants to get to know us and for us to get to know our God. So God in time, the fullness of time came, this moment, the incarnation, the incarnate, carnation means the enfleshing of God, the eternal word. God's word became flesh at the fullness of time. And in the past, he spoke through prophets in various ways, as it says here, um, he spoke impartial in various ways to our ancestors. This is our ancestors It says, through the prophets. And then these last days, he spoke to us through his son. So here you go. We've seen God is starting to come and reveal himself to us. And as we we look at this, we look at, again, how are we made? We're made with an intellect and a will. Okay? How do you get to know each other? I mean, how do we get to know each other? Just think about it. Lauren and Phil, sorry. (laughs) Lauren and Phil, how do you guys get to know each other? Like, try, you know, try not using your mouth to get to know each other. Try just standing still and like, okay, Phil, get to know me. <laughs> You've got to use your body. You use your senses. You use your, you use your five senses. You use your intellect to get to know each other, to talk to each other. Use your will to act in, in getting that self-disclosure. So we have an intellect and will, and we get to know each other through our senses. we got to see things. Like if you've never saw uh, an apple, and I, and I start talking about apples, you know, you guys would be like, you know, what are you talking about? Because you never saw one. So you know what an apple is because you saw it, you experienced it. So God, through the prophets, through the patriarchs, throughout time, is revealing himself. And self-disclosing himself throughout time, subtly, okay? And so, anthropology, I'm just going to write, just say, abbreviations. So, anthropology precedes theology. If you're going to study God, you first have to understand who you are. God is wants us to know who we are. He wants to save us from not knowing who we are. Okay? So anthropology precedes theology. So if you're going to understand the Bible, and you're going to understand this love story, 
You have to, like Augustine says, let me know myself, God, that I might know you. How did you make me? What's this desire in me, this longing me? What's all this stuff going on in me? So this discovery of God begins with the discovery of self, the study of self, knowing who you are as a human being with a body and a soul, with an intellect and a will and your five senses, memory, imagination, all of these beautiful things God gave us. So to understand God and to study God, we've got to look at ourselves. And so God's word, his word, is so that we come to know ourselves as he made us for him. But you won't want to give yourselves to God if you have a warped image of God. You know, like, Lord, if I said, you know, Phil, I saw him downtown hanging out with other women last night. That would probably change your heart, huh? Yeah. (laughs) So, if she believes that lie, their relationship's changing seriously, right? If Satan can convince you that God is someone that he's not, your relationship with God will change seriously. And this is why God is progressively revealing himself because in the beginning, Satan came into the inner garden where humanity and God were intimate. Adam and Eve and God were so intimate. One, no sin. And the serpent comes in and he says, God isn't who you think he is. Lord, Phil's not who you think he is. Like, what if I start, you know, playing the field devil's out with the serpent here? You have a choice to make. Are you going to take Phil for his word or are you going to believe my word? You've got to make a choice. And so Adam and Eve made a choice to believe the serpent's word over God's word. And that, that's what we call original sin. The original fall, the original sin is when humanity turned from when Laura turns from Phil to the serpent, when I turn from from God to the serpent. It's the the word turn away from. Actually, the word repent means to turn, turn away from. What are we turning away from when we repent? Turn away from the lies of the serpent and turn to the word of God. And so, again, just laying a foundation here, I want to read John chapter 1. 1 to 5, if we can go to that. John 1, 1 to 5. John 1, 1 to 5. Page 144. Okay, who wants to read it? 144. Who wants to read it? Okay, go for it. (laughs) Yeah, one to five. Listen to God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him. Without him, nothing came to be. What came to be through him was life. This life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, so... In the beginning was the Word, and all things came to be through the Word. Guess what? You guys came to be through the Word. Your bodies were part, your your parents are procreators, meaning they participate in the creative act. Your parents, my parents, gave us the flesh, the body. God creates the soul out of nothing at the moment of our conception. The soul is immortal, comes directly from God. 
the moment of conception, the body and soul become a person. And that person grows into where we are now. Now, this present moment. So, God created us through His Word. He brought us into being through His Word. Okay? And then it goes on to say there, if we look at it, it says, Through Him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. Okay. If God created me, through His Word, to live, move, and have my being in Him. If I'm created to act a certain way, to live a certain way, to think a certain way, that's, to the degree that I cooperate with the way God made me, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sinning. To the degree that I start choosing to live, act, and move in ways that I'm not created to live, move, and act, I'm sinning. Whether I'm aware of it or not, it affects me. If I drive a car like a bulldozer, I drive it contrary to its design, it falls apart. If humanity chooses to act contrary to the word through which they were made, we start to fall apart. We start to experience the effects of sin. We start to fall apart. If you start thinking in ways you weren't created to think, you'll fall apart. This is one of the arguments I make for anxiety and stress and depression. You're thinking in ways God didn't ask you to think. Or you're believing things you aren't, you're implementing that isn't meant to be. So, again, sin is acting contrary to how God made you, contrary to God's word. See, it's not something out here. God created us. Know thyself so that you can know him. But let's say on the day Adam and Eve fell, on the day Adam and Eve fell, Adam and Eve, let's say Adam and Eve had a car with air in their tires. Say they're driving their new car, honeymoon car, whatever. And the devil comes and slashes all their tires. And Adam and Eve just keep driving around with flat tires, rubber shredding off the rims. And then Adam and Eve's children see them driving around with no air in their tires. And then the next, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's children's children and children and children see everyone driving around with air with flat, flat tires on their rims shredding and everything. And to this day, or actually up until this day, we've made normal what is not normal. So Adam and Eve's tires were shred by Satan or knocked out by Satan, and then every generation up until this day thought driving around with no air in your tires was normal. And then along comes this guy who's driving around with air in his tires, Jesus. And humanity... Humanity's like, light bulbs start going off. They're drawn to him. Like, there's something about this guy. I can't put a finger on it, but he's different. He has air in his tires. Hey, guys, maybe we should put air in our tires. So Jesus came to reinflate our tires. He came to fix what Satan screwed up. And... and one of the documents of the church in Vatican II, it's one of the church councils recently, it says, only in the mystery of the Word made flesh, only in the mystery of the Word made flesh, does the mystery of mankind truly become clear. What's the scripture say? Through him was life, and this life 
this life, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This life who is Jesus, it says, was the light of the human race. Up until this day, everyone in humanity was in darkness because they thought it was normal to drive around with flat tires. That's being in darkness. That's not knowing you, you're called to more. You're called to better. You need to be saved. Oh, I don't, what do I need saved from? I mean, my, look, my friends have flat tires. I got flat tires. What's the problem? And the Lord's saying, the father's like, son, we got to get down there and inflate some tires. You got major problems. They, 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 they forgot what it means to be human. Only in the mystery of the incarnation does the mystery of man make sense. Because Christ came into the world. He was the first one since the fall to reveal to humanity the purpose of their lives, the purpose of being alive. And that's why Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Why is he the light? Because everyone needs to see. This is what it means. Guys, you want to learn about being human? You want to learn how to be fully actualize your potential as human beings? Look at Jesus. He's the revelation of what it means to be human. So we're getting, we're get, I know I'm, I'm a wild man with this stuff sometimes. It's, I take too much time, but I like to lay a foundation before I go in. There's one more scripture I want to go into now. If we can go to John 18. John 18, 37 and 38. Page 170. Now we're getting to this point. Who wants to read that? John 18. 37 and 38. Someone read it. Go ahead. Go ahead. You can read it. Yeah. So Pilate said to them, Then you are a king? Jesus answered, You say I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is the truth? Okay. I came into the world to testify to the truth. The truth about what it means to live as God made you. The truth about being a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, a mom and a dad. The truth about humanity. I came to testify to it. What's Pilate say? Well, what's truth? Who gives a crap? You know, like, what's truth? It sounds a lot like the relativism of our world. Oh, that's good. You follow Jesus. That'll be great for you. You follow Buddha. Good for you. You follow, you know, um, whatever. It's good for you. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Either Jesus is a nut or he's, he's God. No one else has ever said, I am the truth. I am the light of the world. You know, Christ is making some major claims, okay? He's saying to Pilate, I'm the truth. He came to bear witness to this truth. Now, we go to Matthew 16, 13 to 19. Matthew 16, 13 to 19. Now we're going to start getting into the guts. <laughs> 
Okay. Matthew sixteen thirteen and 19. Who wants to read that? Yeah, 13 through 19. Go ahead. When Jesus went into the reign of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? The first Gallup poll. <laughs> he replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the nether world shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay. Here's Peter. Okay, here's Peter and the apostles, and they're asked, Jesus is asking a serious question. Who do you say that I am? Or who do people, he first asks, who does the general public say that I am? Prophets, Elijah, da 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 da. Then Jesus looks right at them, makes it personal. Well, who do you say that I am? And of all the apostles, one voice rang out. The voice we say of our first pope. The word pope means papa, father our first spiritual father. His voice rang out, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter gets it right. And he says, God revealed this to you. Then he gives Peter the keys. He says, Peter, I'm going to build my church. You're a rock, and I'm going to... On this rock, I'll build my church. I give you the keys to the kingdom of God. How do you and I enter the kingdom? What is the kingdom? The kingdom is where humanity is perfected because of what God is doing, is done, and will do. Humanity is perfected in heaven. Heaven is perfect. Humanity is perfected. You're glorified in Christ. You are perfected in Christ. There's no, there's no mess-ups in heaven. Everything's perfect. God wants to bring thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants to bring humanity to their full potential. He wants you to live as you're created, to walk as you're created, to think as you're created, to speak as you're created, to live in him. And so Peter gets it right. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, your rock. On that firm foundation, Peter, I'm building my church. You're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. And he said, I give you the keys, meaning, Peter, I'm entrusting to you an authority. If I give you the key, if I said, hey, here, this is my house, can go for it. I just gave you authority to come into my house. And you can let people in or out. You got the keys. So, when Jesus gave Peter keys, he gave him authority. And, and, and just to get this too, I didn't get to say this because there's not enough time, but in Luke 6, 12 to 26, Jesus prayed all night before he chose the 12 apostles. He prayed all night. God's praying all night so he could choose his 12. These 12 that he chose and spent three years with, slept, ate, talked, sat around the fire, cooked fish, this, these, this, Jesus is imparting to them the truth 
not just for the apostles, but for every generation until this day when you and I sit here. We wouldn't even be in this room if there wasn't Peter and the 12 apostles. We wouldn't be in this room if the second pope and the third pope and all the bishops after that didn't continue to pass on the faith from generation to generation. So what Jesus is doing is establishing here what we call the magisterium of the church, okay? So the magisterium. The word magisterium um, means teaching office. Christ established his teaching office. So you have the Father, the Holy Spirit. You got Jesus coming through the Holy Spirit. And then you got Peter and the Twelve, which is the magisterium. He establishes a teaching office, a governing body in the church, because he knows the nature of the human person. If there's no one to govern, protect, and pass on the amazing sacred truth that he's passing on, like Jesus is making a deposit. He's giving Peter and the twelve some important information. Christ says, I'm downloading everything here for the salvation of humanity. You guys got a big job. Do not let anyone add to it. Do not let anyone take from it. You pass it on as I gave it to you. That's the role of the apostles, the pope, and the bishop. To hand on from generation to generation as Christ's established governing body, teaching office, the truths necessary for the salvation of humanity. Serious stuff. And this isn't about something. This is about someone. To get to know him. Remember I said in the beginning, the word of the serpent was believed more than the word of God. So Christ is the word that Adam and Eve rejected. The Father's like, trust me. Adam and Eve turn away from the Father's word, and they accept the serpent's word. So God sends his son in time and says, the same word you rejected in the Garden of Eden is coming into the world, and I'm going to give you another chance. But I'm going to even make it easier. I'm going to put flesh on him. I'm going to give you someone you can see, touch, experience. I'm going to give you my son, and my son agrees to come because he loves you, and he can't stop thinking about you. He's going to save you from believing garbage about me. Satan wants you to believe lies about God. Why don't you always, let's just be honest, why don't we always like to pray? Because we believe things about God that aren't true. Like, you know, Lord, why do you want to spend time with Phil? Because you're getting to know him and you're starting to love him as you come to know him. As God reveals himself to us, we get to know him, we want to love him and spend more time with him. And ultimately, the Eucharist is the marriage of God and humanity. What do we say at Mass? This is my body given up for you. What does a married couple say to each other? This is my body given up for you. This is my blood poured out. They become one flesh. At every Mass, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. A website, right? <laughs> so, God, Jesus becomes man, downloads, if you will, his heart. And he gives this to the apostles. And then the apostles take this, and Peter and the twelve are like, okay, we got a huge job in front of us. We got to share this with everyone. And so he establishes this magisterium. So Jesus, through his teaching, by word and deed, came into the world. And so the magisterium is there. Okay, the magisterium 
is to help us to know what is inspired by God and what isn't. What's from God and what's not. What came, church, what came first, the church or the Bible? Did you ever think of that? The church. This, this didn't fall out of the sky like this. Guess who put this together? The church. The church decided which books would be in this Bible. Because God chose his magisterium to lead and guide his people. And there were tons of other books. If you, you, can, you can do your own research. But there are tons of other books that were claimed to be inspired word of God. Written scriptures. They were going all over the place. Think about it. They didn't have a printing press. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have all of these forms of communication we have today. It wasn't for years and years after Jesus died and rose and went to heaven and the Holy Spirit came that the church, some communities might not even get a copy of, of one of the books of the Bible for years and years. And another community, like let's say Corinth got a copy of one of Paul's letters. Well, Galatia still didn't get that. So there was no Bible to be like, okay, let's look up where. No, there wasn't that. The church put this together. This, the magisterium of the church put this together. And just to give you a few, a few dates on this. In the year 382, in the Council of Rome, there was an official declaration which books it would be in the Bible. The list, we call it the canon of Scripture. <laughs> There's 73 books in, our, in that Bible that you receive. 46 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. These were the books that the magisterium of the church decided are inspired by God. There were many other people throwing all kind of other stuff around that wasn't accepted, okay? Then in the Council of Hippo, again, these are bishops of the church that are meeting councils of bishops, meeting saying, we got to get this going. If you look at that handout, you guys can kind of look at that and... Get a little taste and feel for what's going on here. If you look at um, um, what is it, the second back of the second page, you see all of the books that are in the Bible and all of the books that were suggested to be a part of this canon. So who's going to decide? Think about the early church. How much was going on? There's stuff flying everywhere, teachings everywhere. Paul, and there, there's all this stuff. That, this is like, you know, Pentecost, there's this explosion, and everyone's, you know, following the Lord and wanting to know, and there's scriptures, and, you know, people are spreading all kind of ideas. And so the church has to come together and, and get this set. And then in 390, so 382, 393, and 397, and 405, Four councils in the church that affirmed the canon of Scripture and what books were in the Bible and what books were not of the Bible, okay? So, just a quick little history there of how, the, how this, this book did it just fall out of the sky with the plastic wrap on it and pick it up. The church, the magisterium of the church decided through the help of the Holy Spirit which books would be in this Bible and which books won't be. And we trust that God works through his church, his magisterium. And so Jesus chose Peter and the twelve to continue. You know, the, the, 
the second pope and the third pope and the fourth pope and all the bishops under these popes, you know, are the teaching office of the church, okay? And so you have these scriptures, um, this, this, this Jesus giving teachings to his apostles, his words and deeds, okay? So this is where we talk a little bit about, um, we have sacred tradition and sacred scripture, okay? Both of these are inspired, okay? We as Catholics don't believe in the Bible alone because there's nowhere in the Bible where it says the Bible alone. And there's nowhere in the Bible where it says which books would be in the Bible. So there couldn't be a Bible alone if there isn't anywhere in the book that says where the Bible would begin. So we don't believe in the Bible, and we believe that nothing in the Bible is contradictory to what we teach in the church. But we say that not everything Jesus said and revealed to his apostles is written. So we would call this the oral and this is the written. Remember, we're not talking about the year 2000. We're talking about way back. No printing press. Everything was handed on by preaching word of mouth. There weren't a lot of written scrolls like to go around. Like everyone gets a scroll. Like we today can just blow off stuff on the internet like nothing. I mean, that's not how it was. So if you look at this handout. So if you look at this handout, I want you to go to the back of the first page. This is a great little diagram here. How the Bible developed. Okay? So you can see the Old Testament there. And you see the oral tradition there at the bottom. Then it shows you that of the oral tradition that was written down is the written scripture. That's this. That's, that's this. So that which was orally spoken by the prophets, by the patriarchs, by Christ himself, that which was written is the written scripture. Okay. Now, not everything that Jesus said and did was written in the Bible. That's in John. Why don't we turn to that? Let's read John chapter 21. Just to kind of give you some scriptural references here. John 21, 25, last verse in John, page 176. Somebody want to read that? You guys want to read it? There are also many other things that Jesus did, but if these were to be described individually, I do not think the whole world would contain the books that would be written. Okay. So in that scripture, we're basically saying Christ did a lot and said a lot, and not everything Christ did and said was written down. But that which was written, we call the New Testament. And not everything, Paul says some things that Jesus never said. So Jesus, we, we presume that Jesus said something to Paul that wasn't written in the Gospels, but Paul somehow picked it up from maybe John or another and wrote it down in his, one of his epistles that he wrote. So you see what I'm saying? So not everything written um, is the, the total 
whole of what Jesus said and did. So we believe that oral tradition, the sacred tradition, is looking at those things that haven't been written. So there are things that haven't been written down, but you're handed on throughout the ages and throughout the generations by word of mouth. Through the Did you ever think of that? The church. This, this didn't fall out of the sky like this. Guess who put this together? The church. The church decided which books would be in this Bible because God chose his magisterium to lead and guide his people. And there were tons of other books. If you, you can look into your own research. But there are tons of other books that were claimed to be inspired word of God, written scriptures. They were going all over the place. Think about it. They didn't have a printing press. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have all of these forms of communication we have today. It wasn't for years and years after Jesus died and rose and went to heaven and the Holy Spirit came that the church, some communities might not even get a copy of, of one of the books of the Bible for years and years. And another community, like let's say Corinth got a copy of one of Paul's letters. Well, Galatia still didn't get that. So th there was no Bible to be like, okay, let's look up where... No, there wasn't that. The church put this together. This, the magisterium of the church put this together. And just to give you a few, a few dates on this. In the year 382, in the Council of Rome, there was an official declaration which books it would be in the Bible. The list, we call it the Canon of Scripture. There's 73 books in, our, in that Bible that you receive. 46 Old Testament, 27 New Testament. These were the books that the magisterium of the church decided are inspired by God. There were many other people throwing all kind of other stuff around that wasn't accepted, okay? Then in the Council of Hippo, again, these are bishops of the church that are meeting councils of bishops, meeting saying, we got to get this going. If you look at that handout, you guys can kind of look at that and get a little taste and feel for what's going on here. If you look at, um, um, what is it, the second, back of the second page, you see all of the books that are in the Bible and all of the books that were suggested to be a part of this canon. So who's going to decide? Think about the early church, how much was going on. There's stuff flying everywhere, teachings everywhere. Paul, and there, there's all this stuff that, this is like, you know, Pentecost, there's this explosion and everyone's, you know, following the Lord and wanting to know and there's scriptures and, you know, people are spreading all kind of ideas. And so the church has to come together and, and get this set. And then in 390, so 382, 393, and 397, and 405, four councils in the church that affirm the canon of scripture. And what books were in the Bible and what books were not of the Bible, okay? So, just a quick little history there of how, the, how this, this book did it just fall out of the sky with the plastic wrap on it and pick it up. The church, the magisterium of the church decided through the help of the Holy Spirit which books would be in this Bible and which books won't be. And we trust that God works through His church, His magisterium. And so Jesus chose Peter and the twelve 
to continue. You know, the, the, the second pope and the third pope and the fourth pope and all the bishops under these popes, you know, are the teaching office of the church, okay? And so, you have these scriptures, um, this, this, this Jesus giving teachings to his apostles, his words and deeds, okay? So this is where we talk a little bit about, um, we have sacred tradition and sacred scripture, okay? Both of these are inspired, okay? We as Catholics don't believe in the Bible alone because there's nowhere in the Bible where it says the Bible alone. And there's nowhere in the Bible where it says which books would be in the Bible. So there couldn't be a Bible alone if there isn't anywhere in the book that says where the Bible would begin. So we don't believe in the Bible, and we believe that nothing in the Bible is contradictory to what we teach in the church. But we say that not everything Jesus said and revealed to his apostles is written. So we would call this the oral and this is the written. Remember, we're not talking about the year 2000. We're talking about way back. No printing press. Everything was handed on by preaching word of mouth. There weren't a lot of written scrolls like to go around. Like everyone gets a scroll. Like we today can just blow off stuff on the internet like nothing. I mean, that's not how it was. So if you look at this handout. So if you look at this handout, I want you to go to the back of the first page. This is a great little diagram here. How the Bible developed. Okay? So you can see the Old Testament there. And you see the oral tradition there at the bottom. Then it shows you that of the oral tradition that was written down is the written scripture. That's this. That's, that's this. So that which was orally spoken by the prophets, by the patriarchs, by Christ himself, that which was written is the written scripture. Okay. Now, not everything that Jesus said and did was written in the Bible. That's in John. Why don't we turn to that? Let's read John chapter 21. Just to kind of give you some scriptural references here. John 21, 25, last verse in John, page 176. Somebody want to read that? You guys want to read it? There are also many other things that Jesus did, but if these were to be described individually, I do not think the whole world would contain the books that would be written. Okay. So in that scripture, we're basically saying Christ did a lot and said a lot, and not everything Christ did and said was written down. But that which was written, we call the New Testament. And not everything, Paul says some things that Jesus never said. So Jesus, we, we presume that Jesus said something to Paul that wasn't written in the Gospels, but Paul somehow picked it up from maybe John or another and wrote it down in his, one of his epistles that he wrote. So you see what I'm saying? So not everything written um, is the, the total 
whole of what Jesus said and did. So we believe that oral tradition, the sacred tradition, is looking at those things that haven't been written. So there are things that haven't been written down, but you're handed on throughout the ages and throughout the generations by word of mouth through the, through the bishops and the teachings of the church. Now, we don't believe that anything in the scripture that's written contradicts the oral or the oral contradicts the written because it wouldn't make any sense. It's all the word of God, so it, it can't contradict or that wouldn't make sense, right? So God's word can never contradict itself. So the word of God... The revelation of Christ. This is going back to the beginning part I spent a lot of time on. Is This is all about Christ revealing to us who the Father is. Because in the Garden of Eden, Satan told us who the Father isn't. And that got into our system and poisoned our relationship with the Father. So Christ came into the world, established the magisterium, because Jesus didn't just come for Peter and the Twelve and the, the community and the little community that he visited. He died, he rose, he went to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, and this magisterium continues to this day. The, we call it the successor of, of Peter and uh, bishops. And if you want to look at Acts chapter 1, you don't have to know, but Acts chapter 1, when Judas killed himself, the apostles elected another apostle, Matthias. Because they were continuing the succession of leadership. In Acts chapter 15, you have the first church council dealing with, your bishops getting together, dealing with all of the craziness going on in, the, in this new experience of God that came through Jesus, through Pentecost. And you got the Corinthians like praying in tongues and doing all kinds of stuff. And the Galatians are fighting about the law and... You're like, what do we do with the Jews? They want to be circumcised. Should we circumcise them? Do we have... you got all these issues that somebody has to resolve. They're like mom and dad. See, God built His church in the same way a family's built. You have a father. You know, the church is our mother. And the father and the mother lead the children. If mom and dad decide, well, let's let the kids decide on everything. Well, guess what? That house would be a mess. Right? If I gave you guys all, let's just say on this disc was a copy of the Constitution of the United States and I just passed it out to everyone in Omaha and says, we're, we're eliminating the governing body in Omaha. No more police. No more firemen. No one to enforce the law. Just, you guys can do it. It's, it's obvious. Follow the Constitution. Guess what? There'd be fights tomorrow. There'd be rioting. There would be car wrecks everywhere because I would be like, well, why can't we make the speed limit 75? I want to go 75. You want to go, why don't we go on the other side of the road? Well, who cares if I cross the medium and jump to the other side? What's the big deal? And you're like, you can't do that. Somebody has to settle all of this stuff. So in the church, you have to have somebody to parent. The word said the word pater, you know, papa. We call the Pope our papa, our spiritual father. And yeah, Christ is called no one father, but you've got to understand that. St. Paul was called a spiritual father. So, Paul is a spiritual father. Our Holy Father is a spiritual father. Pope, Pope Benedict, at this day, is the Peter of our day. And the bishops are the apostles. And so, you see how God has developed this over time. And so, you have the Old Testament and the New <coughs> Testament, okay? And again, as far as... Um, 
learning about, um, more about how the Old Testament developed and how the New Testament came to be. We can give you more on that if you'd like. Um, there's so much that you could, we could spend years talking about this, but this is kind of just give you, I want to give you a bird's eye view, a, a general template to kind of see through and think through, to understand how this, how, this, how does this deal with you? It goes back to the truth about who Jesus is. If you don't know who Jesus is, you don't know who the Father is, and we go right back to square one with Satan. So we need a magisterium to keep passing on the untainted truth about who Christ is and to bring us into Christ so that we can have this experience of the Father, which will allow us to flourish to our full potential as human beings, as men, as women, as wives, as mothers, as fathers, as husbands, so that humanity could reflect on earth what is going on in heaven. Holy communion. <coughs> Holy communion. Again, going back to the Mass. So you have this, this, if you will, trinity of understanding here. You have to always have the magisterium to have sacred written scripture in the oral tradition. If you take one of these out, you got a problem. No magisterium, guess what? <coughs> this book would never exist. No magisterium, no Bible. We wouldn't even have a Bible to pass out. Because no one would have, no one would have decided which one's going here. You take out sacred tradition, we wouldn't have the written scriptures. Because written scriptures come from the oral tradition. You take out the written scriptures, it makes no sense. Because that would presume that, you know, like, well, how can you take out the written if they've come from the oral that means, again, you just don't have a Bible. You just go by oral tradition. God wants His Word to be written down so that we can pass it on. And you know, um, the first book on a printing press was the Bible. You know, There's a lot of myths about the, the church and, you know, there's good. Oh, the Catholic Church burned Bibles. Um, we did burn Bibles, and we burnt Bibles because they were badly translated. You know, if, 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 you, if I handed you guys a recipe and, and on there it says put kerosene in your cake batter, I mean, you'd be like, that's stupid, burn that thing. So, like, we're talking about, we're talking about who Jesus is. So, if, like, there's lies about who Jesus is, it's better to burn that Bible than that truth, that lie to be passed on from generation to You know, there's, like, all oh, the Catholic Church chained the Bible so people couldn't read it. We chained the Bible so that everyone could read it. You know, to, to, get a, to get a written copy of the Bible, you know, back then, before the printing press, would, would today amount to thousands and thousands of dollars. And if you didn't chain the Bible as you came into the church, guess what? Somebody's going to steal it. So the church did chain the Bible because it was so precious, they didn't want anyone stealing it. It wasn't easy to get copies of the Bible. So there are these things that you hear, you know, that the church wants us to read the Bible. But the Bible is not meant to be read in isolation from the teaching office of the church. Peter himself says, um, there's a scripture here, let's see where if I can find it. There's a scripture where Peter
Anyhow, I can't find it right now, but it, it basically says how Peter says, you know, that the Bible isn't to be read in isolation from the church, that it's not an easy document to interpret. It's not an easy thing to interpret. Interpret. And when we look at the Bible and read the Bible, something that I didn't get to talk a lot about was the Bible involves, there's many different types of literature that the Bible is composed of. There's poetry, there's proverbs, there's wisdom, there's stories, there's narratives. Yeah. Oh, what, what, did you say Peter said that? Yeah, it's in Peter. Well, what, what did, oh, what is, when, when was Peter written, like, what was the Bible consisted of then? Actually, here it is, it's, uh, 2 Peter 3.16. You want to find on your... This guy's got like a flying... Read that. 2 Peter 3.16. As far as when Peter was written... This um, is yeah, my phone, by the way. It's <laughs> so, right. it says 61.62 on this sheet that you passed out. Peter was written. So what books did they, I mean, they didn't have books. It was all oral at the time. Yeah, like when Peter, I mean, again, it was, Jesus died around 33, we say, right? Tradition is around 33, which means Peter wasn't written until 20 years after, you know, Christ. And, and then when was that passed around to the communities? Again, it took time. Like, that might have been 50 years before some communities even heard someone read Peter. People couldn't read. They heard stories. So again, you got to look at, this is like, gives us a perspective here of what we're really dealing with, the culture we're dealing with. There's a, it was a storytelling culture. It was an oral tradition culture. Things were passed on from children to children to children. Um, Don't let the telephone line get messed up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this, exactly, it's kind of like the game telephone, right? The magisterium makes sure that, okay, what are you guys hearing? And when they had a question, who solved the problems? They went to the church. Um, and that's how they solved their question. Because there was a lot of ideas floating around. Just like today, you know, we have all these ideas. But if there's no frame of reference, then where do I, where do I begin? You know, like who has the truth? But what did Pilate say? What is truth? And that's kind of where we've gotten today. There's this information overload where people are like, what's truth? I have my truth, you got your truth, that's cool, let's just leave it at that. That's not the message that we hear in Jesus. He says, I am truth. So who is he? And Peter says, you're the son of God. And so we all have to come to that own place where we, through the help of your learning and studying, that we all confess that Jesus, you are the Lord and Savior of my life. I accept you, I choose you. But for you to say that means somebody taught you about him. You guys wouldn't even be in this room if there weren't people that died for the faith before us, years before us. Everything we, we are talking about, somebody taught you. And who taught them? And who taught them? And who taught them? It goes all the way back to Peter and the Twelve Apostles. It's been passed on, imparted. We impart the faith to each other through our words, through our actions, through our sharing. So go ahead, you want to read that? Sure. Second Peter kind of starts at 14 through 16. Therefore, beloved, since you await these things, be eager to be found without spot or blemish before him at peace. And consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, also wrote to you, 
speaking of these things as he does in all his letters. In them there are some things hard to understand that the ignorant and unstable distort to their own destruction, just as they do the other scriptures. Okay. So see, it's just saying basically there that it's not easy. The Bible, you can't take that verse and read it apart from chapter 3. And you can't take chapter 3 and read it in isolation to the whole book of Peter. And you can't read the whole book of Peter in isolation from the New Testament. And you can't read the New Testament in isolation to the whole Old Testament. It's all connected. You take one verse, I mean, I can take one verse out of the Bible and start making all kinds of stuff up. But that verse has to be interpreted in the context of the chapter, the chapter in context of the book, the book in context of the New Testament, the New Testament in context of the Old. St. Jerome says that the new is hidden in the old, and the old, or the, the other way around, right? The old is hidden in the new, and the new reveals the old. So the Old Testament is hidden in the new, and the new reveals the old. It, it, it brings it to light. Remember, it's, it's a revelation of the Son of God. So it's coming to, as you read the Scriptures and you start to understand how all of the Bible starts to thread together, you open it and you're like, that's why like, Paul was such an amazing preacher. He knew the Old Testament like front and back. So when he read the New Testament, or not read it, should be an absolute book, but when he, when he experienced the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles, and hearing this for the first time, and then having this experience, uh, you know, being knocked off his horse, if you will, he was like, it was all coming alive. He's like, this guy's God. I mean, this is the Son of God. Like, he had this conviction. Because he saw how Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament. Which, it would be like you and I, the way I explain this, if we were, let's say they were showing a movie in the next room, and we all walked in with 15 minutes of the movie left. But we missed the first hour and a half. We would be like, everyone's laughing, and be like, wow, and we're like, I don't get it. Well, it's the same with the Bible. If you really want to get it, you got to get the whole thing. you got to watch the whole DVD. You can't just turn to the last 15 minutes and expect it to, to, to be like a revelation. The punchlines aren't going to get yet unless you saw the beginning of the movie. So if you really want to understand the New Testament, you have to grow in knowledge of the Old Testament. That doesn't mean you got to like know all the Hebrew and all of the cultures. We have people that have done all this stuff. We just can get good... good Good Bible commentaries that, that bring this stuff to light. Um, and there's ways of reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible. If we have a moment I can talk a little bit about. But, um, For example, there's, there's um, um, just to go real quickly, there's the literal interpretation and the spiritual, okay? Literal is like the culture, the language... Um, the, uh, the, you know, that, that topography of the land, all that stuff, you know, what did they do? And it's the literal sense. Like, what did, what did these people that were hearing this word, like, what did they, what was their human experience, culture, age, race, kind of things they did, what kind of food they ate, all that stuff. And the spiritual has three parts. Um, the analogical, the moral, 
basically have to analogical with the first spiritual one would be like this the Red Sea, the crossing in the Red Sea is a type of baptism. What happened when the Israelites went to the Red Sea? They left Egypt. What happens when we're baptized? We leave the, the worldly lifestyle and we come into living a new life. God was leading Israel from Egypt to the promised land. He's leading us from a living a worldly life into living as the kingdom of God. And what happened when the Israelites went through the Red Sea? Guess what was at the bottom of the Red Sea? Egypt. Egypt was washed away. When you and I go through the waters of baptism, God washes sin off of us. He washes the old, sinful, worldly life off of us. If you will, we die to that, and we rise to new life, and we, we are on our way to the promised land, which is heaven. So that's an analogical, analogical understanding. The, the, the Passover meal is a type of the Eucharist. In the Passover, the lamb, it says, God says, I want you to procure a lamb, a male unblemished lamb. I want you to slaughter the lamb, put its blood on the doorpost, and you have to eat the lamb. And the angel of death will pass over at night, and all the firstborn will die. And you'll be, that's when they, they flee from Egypt, right? What happens at the Mass? The Lamb of God. What's John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of... Jesus is the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb was on the cross. And we eat the Lamb of God at the Mass. We receive the Lamb of God. Just like the Israelites received the Lamb. And the angel of death passes over us. And we're set free. So you can see like this analogical Christ fulfilling... Miracles or prophecies are things of the Old Testament. It's fulfilling. Moral just simply means, you know, love your enemies. That's a moral teaching. Love your enemies. You know, do good to those who persecute you. You know, uh, moral, just morality. And then the anagogical means, it just means future-oriented. The church is the new Jerusalem. You know, heaven, the new heavenly Jerusalem. It's always thinking of how do I interpret my life with a reflection of it of heaven, my, my leading me toward heaven, you know, um, so it's always pointing toward the future, my future destiny in heaven, um, so that's how we read the Bible, this, this part is important, there's been great um, biblical scholars that have done all this work for us, this stuff's done, you just need to look at the sources and learn it. And with this in mind, you then can look spiritually. What's the analogical moral sense? Often we focus on just the moral. We miss so much. We just kind of leave a lot out. So that's just kind of, again, a quick... Again, there's so much to say. Does anyone have any questions or thoughts? You can look at that handout more, too, and just take it. And if you have questions, again, next week we'll have more time to talk about um, some of these things. Yeah. Sure. Well, at the Mass, there's a, 
we'll talk again like Mike Willis says, well, we will get more into this as we go on. But like at the Mass, we always read an Old Testament reading, a Psalm, a New Testament, and then a Gospel reading. Because we're showing how, you know, we're, we, we hear the Old Testament, then we, we respond with a Psalm response. Like almost a gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. Then we hear the New Testament reading. Like let's say you hear Job, which has recently been read, in the Psalm. Then you hear maybe Galatians or Romans. And then you're hearing the Gospel, Okay. In a three-year period, if you go to Mass every day, in three years, you hear most of the whole Bible. So we do teach the Bible, and people are free to bring their own Bible to Mass. But like the Magnificat would have the, the readings for the liturgical reading. So that you can meditate on that. But we, we encourage people to, like let's say you're reading Job chapter 3, 20 to 28. It's just hypothetical. Um, we would encourage people to go home and read the whole third chapter of Job and eventually you want to read the whole book of Job to kind of see the bigger picture. So it's not that we don't encourage it. It's just that in the liturgical um, setting, those are the readings people prepare for at Mass. Then the priest is meant to break open what was read and show the, basically do this. A good homily, which I'm not the greatest at, but a good homily, I often leave this out. I need to work harder on this part because this is important to really understand the Scripture. You've got to understand this. You can't interpret the Scripture in the year 2012 that was written in the year 50 the same way. You have to think. If you will put yourself, what was the intended, what did they hear? when this message was being spoken. That's kind of what you're trying to get out of the literal sense, the literal meaning. The spiritual, you know, most of us focus on that. But you really can't understand the spiritual properly without a proper literal understanding of the Bible. So it's not that we don't encourage it. You're right. I mean, in all honesty, you're exactly right. Everyone should bring it. If, if, if I was in charge, I'd, I'd put a Bible in every pew. And then I would have the people, and my my masses would be two hours or more. <laughs> and I would say to you, I would say to the people, we're gonna worship, we're gonna worship God. If you guys wanna worship, you're welcome to worship. But we're gonna go through this, and we're gonna really study God's word. We're gonna get into it because see, the purpose of the word it's like the menu and the meal. You go to a restaurant, what happens? You look at the menu. Why do you look at a menu? To get you ready to eat. Right? And, and, and think about it. What happens when you, when you meet with friends? And you guys will see this in a video. Father Barron gives a video on this. But what happens is you often sit and talk at a table. And then you share a meal. We do the same thing at Mass. We sit and talk about God's Word. And then we eat the meal. Which is really the Passover. We receive the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We enter communion. God and humanity become one at the Mass. Everything, we believe, points to the source and summit of the faith, which is the Mass. And, it, and we'll talk a lot more about that. But it's a good question, and, and I'm with you 100%. Like, this would be in every pew. And people should have their own Bibles to bring, though, because you want to use your own Bible, because you write in it and stuff, you know. So, yeah, I encourage you to bring your Bibles to church 
Go to church, bring your Bible. Find the readings going on at Mass. Find them in your Bible and bring a marker and, and start shouting amen. And, you know, <laughs> Come on, Father. Speak it out. You in the meal. You go to a restaurant. What happens? You look at the menu. Why do you look at a menu? To get you ready to eat. Right? And, and, and think about it. What happens when you, when you meet with friends? And you guys will see this in a video. Father Barron gives a video on this. But what happens is you often sit and talk at a table and then you share a meal. We do the same thing at Mass. We sit and talk about God's Word and then we eat the meal, which is really the Passover. We receive the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We enter communion. Remember, God and humanity become one at the Mass. Everything we believe points to the source and summit of the faith, which is the Mass. And, it, and we'll talk a lot more about that. But it's a good question, and, and I'm with you 100%. Like, this would be in every pew. And people should have their own Bibles to bring, though, because you want to use your own Bible, because you write in it and stuff, you know. So, yeah, I encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. Go to church, bring your Bible. Find the readings going on at Mass. Find them in your Bible and bring a marker and, and start shouting amen. And, you know, <laughs> Come on, Father, speak it out. I'm all for that. I'm with you. And we can learn, as Catholics, we can learn a ton about that desire and hunger from our Protestant brothers and sisters, which we need, we need to do that more. It's like, it doesn't make sense to like, you know, just go to a meal, but you never have any conversation. And that's why for some people, the Mass doesn't, again, impact them like God wants it to, because they haven't spent time conversing <coughs> with the one they're sitting with. It would be like you and I sitting down and never talking and just... And we walk away. It's like, that's stupid. <laughs> the whole point of going to a meal is to build a relationship with that person you're, you're sitting across from. And in this case, it's Jesus Christ. So I'm with you. Preach it. <laughs> uh, my question was, when, where and when did like, the name the Catholic Church come from? Like, I think it was the year one, around the year 110, um, St. Ignatius of Antioch used the word Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. Because what was happening, again, is you could imagine, um, people were like, it's in the Bible, like, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong, and they're like, universal. you belong to Jesus Christ, the universal church. That's one of the beauties of our faith. No matter where you go in the world, you can find a church pretty much. And the celebration is there, you know, the Eucharist. Um, and this is how God's Word was always read. It was always read in a liturgical setting. Even in the Jewish faith, the Word of God was always read in a liturgical setting. There was the priests, they were the ones who interpreted the Scriptures, who shared the Scriptures, and the people would gather around. It's no different in our church. Jesus fulfills that. He calls us all to, to read the Holy Word. Um, so yeah, that I think around one ten is that right, Michael? Around one ten, the next is Vantiak, and did you make a vote on that, or did it just kind of stick? I, you know, I don't, I don't. I think it's just one of those things that it, it, they used, you know, it makes sense. I guess universal, the word Catholic. Um, 
for everyone. And in our church, there's like, everybody's welcome. It's a wide variety of people. We're all sinners, right? God's working on saving us all. And like, we never say, once saved, always saved. I'm being saved. That's our response. Have you, been, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Yes, and He's saving me. If, if it was once and for all, you know, there is that personal, yes, Lord, I choose you, but then that begins the process of, of becoming holy. Sanctification begins. Where we become conformed. No longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. You know? That's a process. We call that the conversion. We're all in conversion here. Everyone, hopefully, we're all converting we're all growing in, into the person of Jesus Christ. So, Anything else? Anyone else? I know it's just a quick bird's fly over a lot of stuff, but like, I really wanted you to get that beginning part because it's important. Otherwise, this me talking about the canon and all this other stuff makes no sense if you can't see how important it is that we are being perfected because God has given us true understanding of who He is. And, 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 and as you experience the truth of who God is, that will lead to a deeper experience of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus no longer is someone out here. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus in here. And we know that we are the body of Christ. If I hurt you, I hurt Jesus. Remember that scripture in, I think it's Acts chapter 9? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who's he persecuting? Paul, Saul, was after the church. But Jesus is saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies directly with his church. He's already dead, risen, and gone to heaven with his father. So Saul's out persecuting the church, and, and Jesus is like, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What you do the least of my brothers and sisters, you do unto me. If you understand that, you got it. That's the message. Mother Teresa, the saints, they all got that. Like, if you know you're looking at Jesus and talking to Jesus and loving Jesus, you, get, you understand Christianity. And that's how we'll be judged. How did you love me? Oh, where did I see you, Lord? I didn't see you or anywhere. He's like, well, what did you do to the least of my brothers and sisters you did to me? He's like, oh, you should have told me that. He's like, I did. <laughs> you sit and listen. <laughs> Open your ears. And it's not easy. That's why we have Jesus on the cross as Catholics. Because living Jesus is dying to our selfishness. Yeah, he died once and for all, but he continues to live his love and die through us for others every day. So when we look at the crucifix, we're like, I feel that, Lord. I understand that. You're living your mysteries in me and through me right now. You're living your passion through me. So we participate in his passion through our baptism into Christ. We are the body of Christ. So when I love you, like when I say no to, there's five cookies here, and I'm like, I want to eat all five, and I'm like, I'm not going to eat all five. I'm going to let this guy have one. Oh, I die to self so that he can eat a cookie. <laughs> That's Christ. Simple way. But. So anyhow, bless you all. Um, we'll have more time next week. Can you have questions? Write them in the box. Um, or think about what I said and you can write them down and even bring them up next week because we're going to continue this basically um, and just keep diving in a little more deeply. Right?